0: Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. As we continue our study through the book of Mark, and again, just to kind of review a little bit, uh, Jesus has now actually uh, come down from the area of the Galilee, and uh, he's on his way to Jerusalem, where he knows uh, in just a short time he's going to be crucified. So we are in the last phase of the Lord's earthly ministry Uh, he's going to be spending now the remaining days in Jerusalem staying primarily at the house of uh, Mary Martha and Lazarus but often spending all night in prayer in the uh, the uh, on the Mount of Olives Um, as as Calvary approaches he's now uh, just more and more spending time with his father to prepare himself for the cross but at this point in Mark 10 we left off at verse 13 last time, and it says Then they brought young children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased, and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up, in his arms, put his hands on them, and bless them." I love that picture of Jesus with the little children. And the Greek word here is a word that means real little children, like infants to, oh, we'll say, toddler age, okay? They're they're very small. In fact, uh, Luke tells us that, uh, Luke uses the masculine, they, they brought little children to him, signifying it was the men, the fathers. And I do think there's something important there. I think it's important for us fathers To bring our children to Jesus in a very real sense I think sometimes men defer that to their wives well she kind of takes care of the spiritual stuff at home here and I'm out making the money well no I'm sorry that doesn't cut it Uh, you know as fathers we have a responsibility to uh, to obviously bring our children to Jesus and primarily that's accomplished by us walking closely with the Lord and letting our children see in us a living vibrant relationship with the Lord I've said it before I'll say it again most of what our children are going to take away uh, from us about the Lord is not taught but caught. They're going to catch it from what they see in us. Uh, and if you have a contagious relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're on fire and you love Him with all your heart, your kids are going to pick up on that. Because you can sit them down and you can teach them doctrine from here until the Lord comes back. But if when you get up off the chair and you go out and live uh, you know, for the world all week long, they're going to forget what you say, but never forget what you were. So uh, it's important. But, but they brought the little children to Jesus. And um, it was not uncommon for people to bring their children to rabbis to have them blessed. And so here's these fathers bringing their little children to Jesus. He, and the disciples at first are upset. You know, these guys, you know, we, we kind of come down on them, but think about it, okay? Uh, Jesus has been telling them some very impacting, very troubling things. He's going to Jerusalem they know he's been talking about dying and they're kind of upset about all that anyways and uh, here comes a bunch of people bringing little kids to have him bless them and, and they're upset it's like hey the Lord's got more important to th- get this kids out of here the Lord's got more important things to do here they be laying his hand on a bunch of kids but the Lord was extremely upset with them because man looks at the outward right but God looks upon the heart and in the disciples eyes these were just kids they weren't anybody important but God looks upon the heart, and there's nothing more precious to God than the heart of a child. As a matter of fact, Jesus wanted to say, unless you approach the kingdom and receive the kingdom as a child, you won't enter it. And what does that mean? It just simply means this. A child is humble. A child uh, is dependent. A child has that innocent, beautiful faith that doesn't question and just believes. Uh, you know, these are the things that Jesus was saying unless you approach the kingdom in this way unless you recognize That you are dependent upon God for everlasting life Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and the word there in The Greek for poor is a word that means destitute, but not just destitute Somebody will say who is like severely handicapped not only are they destitute, but they have no means to ever get any money They're completely helpless And that's the idea. Jesus said unless you approach the kingdom in that way, recognizing you are completely bankrupt of anything that will ever even begin to earn your way into the kingdom of heaven, you can't ever even produce any good works that will in any way be looked upon by God as having, you know, allowing you to have some entrance into the kingdom. You are totally bankrupt. If you don't come in that way, you can't receive the kingdom because you have to recognize that in you, that is in your flesh, there dwells no good thing. There's nothing you've ever done that can ever be offered to God as a way of saying, "Well, Lord, look what I've done for you, Don't I deserve the kingdom? No, not at all. And so a child has that child is dependent. They, they know that. They know they need their parents, they're humble, they're sincere, they have that beautiful childlike faith. and all these qualities have to be in every one of us who approach Jesus Christ and want to enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to receive it like a child. Can't come proud, arrogant, self-sufficient, God, you need me, kind of an attitude. I can do a lot for your kingdom, God. You'll just, you know, no, forget about it. Uh, You have to come as a child. That's what Jesus was saying here. And he took them up in his arms, and he put his hands on them, and he blessed them. Now we get into a story that, for me, is one of the most fascinating encounters of all the people that came to Jesus Christ. To me, the story of the rich young ruler is one of the most fascinating and impacting. We know it was important because all three of um, of the Synoptic Gospels include this story in them. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all thought this story was important enough to include it in their Gospels. And not only that, we know it was unique because out of all the people that came to Jesus, the rich young ruler was one who left worse off than when he came. Many people came to Jesus sad. But they all always left rejoicing this is the only guy that came to jesus expecting to receive yet going away very sorrowful okay and i think this is one of the most important encounters in all the gospels of jesus dealing with somebody because as we go through the story you're going to realize that i believe the holy spirit included this this whole thing was included here in the gospels for our learning in that so oftentimes I think we're so prone to present a very uh, very uh, shallow, canned presentation of the gospel and we don't really stop to really make sure, first of all, that we know what the gospel is all about. We think we do. But so many Christians don't really understand what it means to really be, give your life to Jesus Christ. Oh, they think they do, and when they present it, it's just, you know, what, just, hey, pfft got problems? Hey, you need Jesus, right? And, 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 and give your heart to Jesus or accept Jesus and man, things will, you know, and we're, we're, we're being salesmen for Jesus. And we're trying to package and present the gospel, as I said before, like a miracle cure for all the headaches of life. If anybody was a candidate for salvation, it was this guy. Okay. And you know what? The way Jesus handled this guy, he would have flunked probably every course in evangelism offered in our Bible colleges and seminaries today. Because this was so unorthodox. And how we ever let this guy get away, people would look at this and go, I mean, if it was one of us who had taken a course on evangelism and then handled somebody like this, we would have been, man, it would just, wow, worked up one side and down the other for letting a guy like this get away. How could you blow this guy? This guy came to you. How many people come to you and say, What must I do to have eternal life? How many people do that? You know, here's a guy who c- comes to Jesus. I mean, forget all the pre-evangelism stuff, you know, that we have to go through all the time, you know, proving to people that God does exist to the best of our ability, that the Bible is the word of God, that they need salvation, and so on and so forth. All this was, this guy comes to Jesus looking for eternal life. How in the world could Jesus have ever let this guy get away? Well, I think there's a great lesson here about evangelism. Now, as one, now as he was going out on the road, one came running knelt before him and asked him, "'Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life?' Matthew tells us he was rich and he was young. Luke tells us he was a ruler, archon in the Greek, which uh, is some kind of a leader or a ruler, and many believe he was a ruler of a synagogue. And so think about it. He was rich, young, at the top of his profession, he was a first-century Palestinian yuppie. If you think about it, which is an interesting thing to think about, considering the day in which we live and how many yuppies and the whole yuppie mentality today, right? But here was a guy who was rich. He was young. He was a ruler of a synagogue. We know he was a moral man. And in all fairness to this guy, it's, it's obvious to me, at least, that he was sincere He really did want to know what he had to do to inherit everlasting life. I mean, he comes to Jesus Christ. Now, remember, this is at a time when the Pharisees uh, and members of the Sanhedrin uh, had openly denounced Jesus Christ. Remember now, he's going to be going now uh, into Jerusalem where the word has already been put out by the Pharisees. Anybody claiming to follow this man is going to be excommunicated. Now you say, well... I guess that's kind of severe, but is it a big deal? Uh, it's not a big deal today when somebody's disfellowship from a church because they refuse to repent of sin. You just go down the street and, and, and fellowship with the next church. But in Israel, you have to understand, and when I was out there last November, they showed us the ruins of some of these towns. And every town, the synagogue was right in the middle. It was the center of the life of that community. So to be put out of the synagogue, you were not just excommunicated, you were disowned. People didn't talk to you. You couldn't work in that town. I mean, it was a big deal. And here comes a guy who is rich, young. He is a public figure. And he runs right up to Jesus and kneels down. And probably the crowd is still there that brought their children. Other people were around him. This guy's risking quite a bit to ask so I, I infer he's very genuine very sincere about his desire to have everybody he knows he's missing something as we're going to see in a moment he is desperate almost to run up to jesus and kneels right in front of him I and mean, he's not afraid of who's around he doesn't care when you get that desperate you don't care who's around you need jesus you know you need something. you're willing to whatever it takes walk the aisle you don't care who says what or who sees you you want to make a, a a public declaration right so here's a guy he was rich he was young as i said he was wealthy he was sincere he was humble he knelt before the lord didn't come in a spirit of haughtiness at all okay and i want you to see this it's important that we understand it would be so easy at a superficial reading to write this guy off as a big hypocrite wanting to maybe you know play to the crowd a little bit no that's not what's going on here at all this guy is sincere he comes up to jesus he kneels before him and asks him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, obviously, the question is inherently wrong, right? Because, you know, and some would say, well, all right, let's not get too down on the guy. I mean, after all, maybe it's unfair to read more into this than what he's just trying to say. I mean, after all, with when... disciples came to Jesus and they said what must we do to do the work of God Jesus said to do the work of God you must believe on him who he has sent so we do have to technically do something right we have to believe but I do sense in this man because as we progress in the story his concept of righteousness was very shallow and outward and I do believe I do believe that he did sincerely want to know what he had to do to gain everlasting life Don't forget, this was the concept among the Pharisees and scribes that you had to keep the law, that you would do do alms, that you would fast and to pray. I mean, they had a long list of things that you did to be righteous, okay? Uh, And I believe that here was a guy that was trying his best to do all these things, but his concept of righteousness was very shallow, and and we're going to see this in a moment. Now, first of all, before Jesus answers this question, he deals with an issue that is very important he said why do you call me good no one is good but one that is God now a lot of commentators say that Jesus rebuked him for calling him good in fact William Barclay went on to say that you know uh, Jesus wanted didn't want anyone praising him he wanted everyone to be pointed to to God to the Father you know Uh, well of course Jesus wanted everyone to be pointed to the Father no doubt about it but I don't see that here Let's if you look at this, Jesus could only possibly be saying one of two things. He's either saying to him, why are you calling me good? There is no one good but God. I'm not God. Don't call me good. Now that's incomprehensible, right? (laughs) Because it's not even true. Of course he's God. So then the other thing, what he must really be saying is this. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Do you see in me the qualities of God? Are you calling me God? Do you see in me something more than a mere man?" And the word that he used was agathos for good. It's a word that means a goodness through and through. It's not just a surface goodness, an outward kind of a thing. This was a Greek word that talked about a goodness that went all the way through a person. And Jesus said, are you calling me good because you see in me something different than any other man you've ever seen? Now I personally don't think he was calling Jesus God. I personally think that part of it was flattery, but I do feel that he did see something in Jesus that was different. Whether he comprehended enough that it was, you know, Godhood, I don't know. We know that Jesus tried to elevate his faith, tried to it tried to enlighten him to its true nature. And so I believe that the first issue, of course, in eternal life is knowing who Jesus is, right? Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. And I am is of course, the name for God, so up front, of course, a very important issue has to be dealt with who is Jesus? Is he just a good teacher it, was he just a great religious man, moral teacher, moral leader, uh, as some have said, the greatest religious teacher that has ever lived, or was he more than that? Was he God? of course, we believe he was God, more than just a mere man and i'm I'm a little personally a little bit baffled by people that that like to say that Jesus was a great teacher, and I like to press him on that a little bit. I said, "Well, do you believe the things he taught? Do you believe that he was God incarnate?" No, I, no, not really. I believe that really the God force is in all of us. Actually, we all have God within us. Do you believe that you're a sinner bound for hell? Well, no, of course not. There is no such thing as sin. I believe that you know there's no real right or wrong. It's whatever the situation dictates. Well, then what do you mean calling him a great teacher? You don't believe anything he taught. I mean, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I associate with greatness is truth. And if Jesus was a great teacher, then obviously in my mind he was a teacher of truth. And yet how can you say he's a great teacher when you reject almost everything he taught about himself and about you, you as a person? So Jesus wanted to elevate this guy's understanding of just who he was, first of all. He said, there's no one good but God. And then he said... Um, When the guy asked him, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? He said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, that really bothered me when I first got saved. And I began to, of course, you know, study the scriptures and began, of course, to realize that it's not by our works that we're saved. It's by grace that the law was not given to make us righteous, but to show us our sinfulness. It was our schoolmasters, Paul said, to bring us to Christ. To show It was a mirror to show us our dirtiness, but it could not clean us up, right? Only Christ could give us that kind of righteousness that the law could never give us. It was never, it was never intended to give us. It was just God's standard to show us how far short we fell of attaining to God's real standard of righteousness. So why in the world, when this guy comes to Jesus Christ and says, what must I do to be saved, what does Jesus do? He tells him to keep the law. You think, well, what in the world, Lord? This is the strangest presentation of the gospel I've ever heard. Well, that would bother you. And it did bother me until I realized something as I studied the gospels more. And that was the way Jesus Christ dealt with people. Jesus always met a person on their level and then he from that level he met them on their common ground with you know and then he used that then to elevate their understanding or enlighten them to the nature of true righteousness and their true need which was of course spiritual i mean oftentimes he fed hungry people like in john six right what the fed the five thousand and then they all went to sleep he got into a boat went across the sea of galilee to capernaum Folks get up the next morning. and They said, "Well, where's Jesus?" Probably they were hungry, stomachs were growling. Hey, that was great last night. Boy, you see that? He fed us all with that five, uh, you know, uh, loaves and two fish. Oh, where's Jesus? I'd like some, maybe some bacon and eggs this morning. Uh, and and they see that his boat is on the other side there. So they all, you know, get into boats and they cross the Sea of Galilee and they find him. And they said, you know, uh, Lord, when when did you come here? And and he said to them, "Look, you only seek me, because." You ate of the loaves and were filled. He said, don't seek after that bread that perishes, but seek after that bread which I give that leads to eternal life. And then he launched into this incredible discourse on discipleship and what it would really mean to be one of his disciples. And he talked about eating his body and drinking his blood. And that so turned so many of them off because they thought he was, had a demon now, that he was talking about cannibalism. He was talking, of course, about a spiritual identification with him where he becomes one with you okay? Like food does when you eat it. It enters into your stomach, is digested, assimilated, and every part of your body, it literally becomes one with you. Unless you become one with Jesus in that very real way, you can't have everlasting life. But the point is, these people were hungry. He fed them. They came back to him, and he used the opportunity to elevate their understanding to their real need, which was not physical. Yes, it was a physical needs important, but their true need was spiritual. They needed salvation, see? They were his disciples, but not like the Twelve. There was a lot of would-be disciples that followed after him but didn't really understand what it meant to become one of his true disciples. So he was always meeting people where they were and then using the opportunity to elevate their understanding. This rich young ruler, you have to understand, he was a ruler probably of a synagogue, He was very much steeped into Judaism like Paul the Apostle was before he became Paul the Apostle. So his whole mindset was the law. And if you remember what Paul said before he got saved, what did he say? He said he believed he kept the law. He really believed that he was blameless with regard to the law. Like he really kept the law all his life until he got saved. And what did the Holy Spirit do? Showed him the law wasn't outward but inward. It wasn't only our outward actions but our inward attitudes. And Paul said, when I recognized the law was spiritual, oh man, did that lay me out because I realized now I had never kept the law my whole life. Even as Jesus said. You say, you know, don't commit adultery, but if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery and so on. You say, thou shalt not murder, but if you look at a person with hatred in your heart, you've already murdered them in God's eyes. So the law was given not just to govern our outward actions but our inward attitudes. and. This young ruler, though, he didn't realize that. At this point in his life, he still believed he was innocent of the law. Jesus could have pressed the point, but he didn't. He met him on that level. In other words, what must I do to have everlasting life? Jesus knew in his heart he believed, keep the law. So Jesus said, keep the law. Well, I always have. He could have said, have you really? Honestly, have you kept the law all your life? But he didn't because he recognized that there was another issue he wanted to get to. See, so he, he gave him basically the second table of the law. Remember the first table was, was four commandments that dealt with our relationship with God. The second table of the law was six commandments that dealt with our relationship with our fellow man. Jesus quoted him the second table of the law and to, to which he responded, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. Now Matthew Adds that he said what do I still lack he realized that all his life he had been a religious guy moral guy church goer you know like so many people today but yet he realized there was something still missing he was empty inside he didn't know what it was he recognized that all of his religion all of his keeping of the law didn't set, it had not given him the feeling that he really had eternal life so a lot of people today that are like the rich young ruler you know in a sense they're yuppies and they have included god in their life they go to church and yet there's an emptiness there in fact time magazine some time ago had an article entitled you can't hug a bmw and basically the gist of the article was this the 80s in the 80s we made a living in the 90s we're going to make a life in other words, no more of this—you know—young urban professionals getting to the office at six o'clock, staying till well past, you know, sundown. Uh, the the '90s is going to be filled with with family time, with vacation, recreation. You know, that's going to be the order of the '90s. Okay, uh, we're going to be devoting ourselves to family stuff. Well, that's good in a lot of ways, but if but as we swing from one extreme to another, we're going to find out that that isn't going to bring us the satisfaction and fulfillment either, because the emptiness can only be filled with a relationship with Jesus Christ in Romans Paul said that God has created every one of us with a god shaped void in our hearts that can only be filled with a relationship with him, and until you do that, you'll always be empty inside. I don't care how good you are, I don't care you know uh I don't care how moral you are, I don't care how hard you work at it. You're always going to have that nagging emptiness, no matter how successful. And, and a lot of people, these, these folks have a lot of material things, you know. Uh, they have the big houses, the fancy cars. They've reached the top of, in their profession, but they're empty. They need Jesus Christ. So he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. And as I said, Jesus could have easily challenged him, but he didn't. Instead, it says, Jesus looking at him, loved him. And the word is agapao, the word we get a word agape from. Jesus agape this young guy. Uh, He loved him with all his heart. And he said to him, one thing you lack. Matthew says, he said, what do I still lack? Jesus said, one thing you do lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was, very, he was sad at this word, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. You see, Jesus confronted him with the second table of the law, right? Which dealt with his relationship to his fellow man. And he said, hey, I've done all these for my youth. And, and probably sincerely believed that he had. Jesus could have pressed the issue, as I said, but there was an even more glaring problem. See, he had broken completely the first table of the law. Money had become his God. The very first commandment, Thou shalt have no other God before me. And Jesus knew that was really the issue here. That was the glaring problem. This guy was sincere, religious. He, he really wanted to know how he could have eternal life. But his money was his God and you know maybe that's why he found it so easy to keep the second table of the law or at least to think he kept it he had he didn't have to steal he didn't have to covet he had all that he wanted basically uh it's easy to obey god when you desire to you know what i'm saying it's easy to say hey i've never i've always been faithful to my wife i've never cheated on my wife and yet you've never had an opportunity. It's one thing to say that's another thing when you're away from home on business and you're approached by somebody and, you know what I'm saying, and you walk away, then, you know, that's something. Uh, But a lot of times people say, hey, I've never done these things. Well, yeah, you've never had a need to. You've never had the opportunity. Uh, You've always had enough to supply your own needs and so on. And Jesus loved this guy, but, you know, the thing about it is, people today say, Well, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. Not perfect, but I feel I'm a good person. Well, Jesus, there's none good but God, see? And even though Jesus loved this guy with all of his heart, that didn't save him. People think, Well, God's a God of love. He won't send anybody to hell. Well, God is a God of love. That's why Jesus came down to walk among us and to die for us because sin had to be paid for, but God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son that we might not perish but have everlasting life. If you reject Jesus Christ, there remains no more payment for sin. And so a God of love has done all that He can do to keep you from going to hell. But if you reject His provision, then you go of your own free will. You decide to go there. See? And all the love of God in the universe will not stop that because God's love can never cancel out his righteousness or his justice. Christians or people want to kind of take one attribute of God and emphasize it to to the exclusion of all the others. You can't chop God up into little bite-sized pieces and just pick out the things you like about his nature and character. You've got to take God as he is. And one of the things that we love about the Lord is his infinite love. But we also need to recognize he's a righteous God, a God of justice. When Abraham confronted the Lord back in Genesis chapter 18, remember how that uh, the Lord came with two angels and the two angels went over to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it. And of course, Abraham knew that his nephew Lot was living there with his family. And so Abraham began to enter into this thing with the Lord. And first thing he said was, Should not the God of the whole earth, or should not the judge of the whole earth, do what is right? Of course. You think if God's going to be a righteous judge you can look the other way with when there's sin? When the law of God has been violated? No. That has to be punished. That has to be dealt with. But God, because he loved us, came down and took the punishment on himself. See? So Jesus loved him, but that love didn't save him. The the rich young ruler still had to make the commitment. Now here's the thing, okay? Jesus says to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now from this, people infer that Jesus was saying to him, Look, and to all of us, the only way you can have eternal life is to give up all your earthly possessions. Didn't Jesus say that here? Okay, how can we argue with this? Jesus said to this guy, Give everything you have away, Come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. So there are people out there today that preach that the only way a person can be saved is to take a vow of poverty and give give all their possessions away. You have to understand here that Jesus Christ is dealing with an individual. And every one of us has different issues, different problems in our lives. And if Jesus was to talk to each one of us individually, He would give us individual input and individual commandments and things that deal with our own life. There is the unique in here, and there is the universal. Don't make the whole thing universal. Don't make the whole thing Jesus said apply to everybody. There is the unique. There is the universal. The unique is this. Go and sell all that you have. The universal is, come follow me. Okay, here it is. The thing that was keeping this guy from truly following God was his money. Now, the money wasn't, it's not not a universal principle. Jesus is not saying that to become a Christian you have to, nobody can have any. I mean, Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man. Nicodemus was a wealthy man. We we know that uh, throughout the Bible, David, Solomon, Abraham, these were wealthy people everyone doesn't have to give up, sell all they have and give it to the poor before they become a Christian but if that is the thing that's keeping you from really following the Lord then of course Jesus has his way of putting his finger in every one of our lives on just what it is that's keeping us from truly following the Lord. Now in this guy's case it was his money in another person's case it might be something else. It might be their job or it might be their mother and father that don't want them to get into the ministry holding them back and they're you know and they're wrestling with obeying their parents or obeying the lord whatever it is that's keeping a person from truly following christ that's what jesus puts his finger on and says that's what's got to go and the universal of course which applies to every one of us who are going to be saved is come follow me so the unique was his money that was unique to this situation his money that was his god it was on the throne of his heart it was hindering him from really coming and following after the Lord. And you know what? It says here, but he was sad at this word and went away grieved. The word grieved there is a word that means in the Greek, storm clouds gathering. A storm. See, he walked away from the sunshine. and Maybe we should spell that S-O-N. And into the storm. Whenever you reject Christ, whenever you walk away from the Lord, you can expect nothing but black skies and storms you know not that we as christians will never exp- you know that we won't experience storms in our christianity but i'll tell you one thing it's a whole different ball game from going through a storm when jesus is right next to you than it is going through a storm without him we go through storms too but when we go through storms we know the lord is with us and that gives us a great sense of comfort right to know he's there this young guy had a lot going for him and yet what really was an issue here was his shallowness he came to Jesus Christ looking for eternal life I believe purely out of a felt need kind of a thing he felt empty he felt unhappy and all of his righteous deeds all of his involvement in the synagogue his youth his money wasn't cutting it he still felt empty and so he came to jesus christ looking for jesus to make him feel better inside better about himself they say is that wrong uh not necessarily i think all of us came to jesus because of some felt need the problem with the rich young ruler though felt needs can never get you saved i mean that's not a good enough reason to come to jesus christ because you're sad and want to be happy Sadness may bring you to Christ. But once you come to Jesus, the cost of discipleship has to be laid out. And you have to see what it means to become a follower of Christ. And at that point, if you're, you recognize your sinfulness, you recognize your need for Christ, not just because now the sadness was just a side issue. The sadness is what drove you to Christ. But now you recognize the sadness is a result of you not having a relationship with God. And now you realize that is the greatest need facing you. And then if you see your need for what it is, as I said, Jesus meets us on our level of our needs and all, but then elevates our understanding to our real needs, which is, of course, eternal, spiritual, right? The new birth. Well, when you see it for what it is, and you recognize your need for God, for the Lord, and if you're willing to make that commitment and forsake all, you know, to, to do whatever it takes to be a follower of His, then you enter, enter into eternal life. If you come to Jesus because you're sad, you want him to kind of give you a little bit of a boost, you know, like a lot of people do. They're going through a bad emotional period. They're lonely, depressed maybe. Things are going wrong one after another. So they're broken. They're looking for an answer. Somebody tells them about Jesus and they think, hey, that's what I need. I need Jesus, right? So they come to church looking for Jesus, but in reality, they're not really looking for Jesus. They're looking for Jesus to give them something, which is to make them feel better inside. And he will do that. But not, not because you just need to feel better inside. That will come as a byproduct of you giving your heart to him and he comes inside to live inside your heart, you see. Um, felt needs can bring us to Christ, but Jesus will not save us based on felt needs. The gospel is not a panacea that's designed to just kind of lift us up a little bit. It's a way of life. You're, you're commi- you know, Jesus is not the divine uh, you know, aspirin tablet that chases the blues away. Uh, he is a living Lord that wants to have control of your life. And the rich young ruler, when the costs were laid out in front of him, he wasn't willing to pay the price, you see. And that's the thing you've got to see here. He wasn't willing to pay the price. He wanted to add God to his life and keep all of his possessions and all of his other things going on. And, and as the saying goes, either Jesus Christ is Lord of all, or he isn't Lord at all. I mean, God will not allow us to just kind of add him to our life. God wants to become our life. And money is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. And the deceitfulness of riches has so choked the soil of this guy's heart to the point that he could no longer receive the good word of God, this good seed of the word of God, which would then bring him to eternal life. He, he couldn't, the cares of this life choked it out. Even as Matthew 13:22 says uh, in the parable of the seed that fell in different types of soil. So... He went away sorrowful for he had great possessions, and we infer and I think rightly so he never did get saved. This is a great tragedy here a great tra- now this really impacted me when I started to think about this some time ago when I, I did a study on um, the nature of salvation and uh, this whole story of the rich young ruler was brought to my attention again and I began to think how i would have handled this guy think about put put yourself in jesus position say somebody comes running up to you they're not going to kneel of course Uh, but they come up to you and they say what must i do to have everlasting life oh gee i mean lord i've been waiting for this day this is a dream come true right i mean how many of us would have just launched right into saying look God loves you. is a wonderful plan for your life. Just accept Jesus right now as your Lord and Savior and let's kneel right now and pray. Just, I'll just lead you in this sinner's prayer, right? And how many of us would have done that and this guy would have gotten up thinking he was a Christian now and would have been as lost as when he came? You see, I think we need to probe people a little bit. Of course, Jesus knew the heart of all men. We don't. We have to probe. See? I think we need to probe a little bit. Well, why First of all, do you know why you're empty inside? Well, not really. I've been, you know, I I, I try to be a good person. Well, but you're not a good person. None of us are. Uh, I think it's important when we evangelize or witness to somebody, I think the first thing that we need to do is do what Jesus did. Confront them with the law. A person will never see their need for a savior until they first see themselves as sinners. If you let people think they're a good person, and they're just going to kind of pray a prayer and add Jesus to their life, they're not going to be saved. They have to first understand that they are not a good person in God's eyes, that they're a sinner. And then you have to begin to probe them as to who Jesus is, what it means to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. Do they understand they're relinquishing control of their life to Jesus? Not that they just believe some facts about Him in their heads, They have to give Him control of their life. He's not only their Savior, but their Lord. And a lot of people don't realize that. They believe Jesus is their Savior, but they're not willing to make Him their Lord. And you can't be saved unless you're willing to do that, see? A lot of people believe a lot of right things about Jesus, believe me. They've gone to church, they've gone to catechism or Sunday school, they've heard these things, and they even believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for their sins, who rose the third day uh, from the dead, that He's the only way into heaven. They believe these things. They honestly do. But they're not saved. Why? Because they've never given Jesus control of their life. That's a very important element to the Gospel that we need to understand. And we're so quick sometimes to get people into the Kingdom and to, you know, the Holy Spirit is beginning to convict them. In a sense, He's bringing forth a new spiritual birth. What do we do? We rush the process and we bring forth a stillborn, spiritual infant. Don't ever do that. Let the Holy Spirit continue to work and convict, and you continue to help people understand, look, there's a cross involved. Uh, You can't just add Jesus to your life. He has to become your life. And I think that we we rush things. I think we, we try to play salesman for Jesus, and we try to package and sell. Uh, the kingdom to people and really we're doing them a great disservice and uh, Jesus is very interesting how he handled this guy to me extremely interesting he didn't just take him at face value he knew his heart he knew there was something really on the throne of his heart and until that was taken off Jesus could never get on See, and we need to probe people God will give you the wisdom to ask the right questions But don't just rush a person through the whole thing and say, well, great, let's pray together. No, ask them some questions. Okay, Why do you feel you need Jesus Christ? Who is he? Who is he? Is he a good teacher or is he something more? Was he God? What do you believe about him? And do you realize that you're asking him to take control of your life now? I mean, do you understand all this? And even if they don't fathom it completely, they have to at least grasp the basics of it. I don't think I really understood what it meant to be a Christian until many, many months after I got saved. But at least I grasped the basics. That's what we need to do. Now, he goes away sad, okay, because he had great possessions. He was not willing to give up these things. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Why were the disciples astonished? Because you have to understand the Jewish mentality. The Jews believed that if a person was rich it was because God had blessed them. And God would only bless the righteous, therefore to be rich meant that you were righteous and being rewarded and blessed by God. So they equated riches with righteousness. And also the rabbis taught the more money you had. The more alms you could do gifts to the poor and things and that did also earn you favor with God and so to a, an average guy who but the wealthy almost can make it into heaven because they kind of have this concept the wealthy almost bought their way in in a sense and God was blessing them because they were so righteous and all And we hear that today don't we there's that teaching today you know if you're right with God he's going to make you prosperous and if you're not prosperous, there's a problem with your walk or your faith or some other baloney. That's nothing new. So when Jesus said, oh it's so difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't saying it was impossible for anyone with riches to get in, but all those who like the rich young ruler have their money on the throne of their life. You see that's what he was talking about. Again money wasn't so much the issue, as was the way you approach the money. That's what he was getting at. Paul said it's not money, that's the root of all evil, it's what? The love of money. You can be a Christian and be wealthy and use that money for God's glory, and by the same token it's not more spiritual to be poor because a poor man could be as greedy as some rich people. He could just every day lust after the thought of being wealthy, winning the lottery. He's consumed with money too. He just doesn't have any, see? It's not more spiritual to be poor. It's all in the heart how you approach the money. Anyways. The disciples, as was so often the case, were dumbfounded, okay? He he laid these guys out more than once with some of the things that he said, and then he said in verse 24, children, how hard it is for those who trust, you see, that was was the key he was getting at. It really wasn't the money. It was that this rich young ruler and others like him who trust in their riches to get them into heaven, what? They're never going to get there. That's the key. You trust in your money to get you into heaven, you'll never get there. See how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are those that say, well, see, now you have to understand there was a subgate that was built into the main gates of the city of jerusalem of course there were like seven gates around the city seven or eight so i'm not sure which gate they're talking about but they say look every night at sunset the gates of the city would be closed and of course then all day on the sabbath too and when that happened all commerce stopped no more traders coming and going he had to protect the city at night from enemies so they would close the gates at sundown but there was this little subgate, a gate within a gate, that was just big enough for access and egress in and out of the city, one person at a time. It was called the Needle's Eye, see? And with great difficulty, you could get a camel through there if you got the thing down on its knees and stripped it of its cargo and one guy literally would pull from the front and one guy would push from the back. You could you could with great difficulties s- squeeze this animal through this little subgate called the needle's eye, you could literally put a camel through the eye of a needle. And that's what Jesus was talking about here. I, I doubt that. Very seriously. First of all, there's nothing in history, archaeology, that ever alludes to a sub-gate named the eye of the needle in the gate of Jerusalem. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a legend that has been passed down from commentator to commentator. Uh, there's no proof of that gate ever existing. But If that's what Jesus was talking about, listen to what he's saying. He was saying a rich man who trusts in his riches could still make it into the kingdom if he tries hard enough. Now, is that what Jesus Christ is saying? No, we know he's not saying that because the very, in verse 26, it says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? They recognized what he was talking about and the impossibility of the illustration he just gave. See, he was talking about a literal camel going through the eye of a literal sewing needle. And we know that, at least it's clear to me, because in verse 27, Jesus responds by saying, well, with men. They said, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with men, it is what? It's impossible. So obviously, he's not talking about some situation where you have a camel that can be, with enough pressure and enough effort, squeeze it through some little subgate. That would mean that... Through our works and self effort, we can squeeze our way into the kingdom of heaven. Ridiculous. Jesus said, With men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I only wish more people would hear the words of Jesus. Again, all those who say, But I'm a good person, you know? I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. Certainly, God will accept me into his kingdom. As if when we die, God takes our good deeds and bad deeds and weighs them on some kind of a spiritual scale. And if the good deeds just tip the scale in our favor, God says, well, come on in. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Jesus said, with men, it is impossible. Why? Because as Jesus said, there is none good but God. Don't say you're a good person because Paul the Apostle said, none of us are any good. I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. Well, that's the problem. To get into heaven, you have to be perfect. You have to be good like Jesus was good, agathos, through and through, and none of us are good like that. In fact, in John 16, remember verse 10, where Jesus was talking to His disciples the night before His crucifixion, and He said to them, I'm going to be leaving soon, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who will lead you into all truth, and so on and so forth. And when He comes, He's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. But the second one is the key of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. When Jesus ascended into heaven and it was received by the Father to sit at his right hand, it was a declaration to the whole world that the only kind of righteousness the Father would receive up into heaven was the righteousness of Christ which, of course, was sinless perfection. Now, when people understand what it really takes to get into heaven, what happens? Now, all of a sudden, they're emptied of self-effort, self-worth. No more of this, I'm a good person, because now they recognize to be truly good, you have to be perfect. You have to be just like Christ. And who's like Christ? I had a friend... Who, uh, our sons play football together. Bobby, my son Bobby, and his son. And uh, I've been working on this guy, keep him in prayer. His name is Frank. Been working on him for a long time. I got into a very good discussion the other night, and he was talking about this very issue, and he was saying, you know, I, I know that I should be doing more, but I I really still feel that I'm I'm basically a good person. I mean, I look at the TV and I see these guys, and all the things that they you know that's on the TV and the things that people do and murder and all these other things. And you know. I just feel like, you know, obviously that I'm better than that and I know God will accept me." And I said, well, Frank, you you look pretty good next to those guys, but how do you look next to Jesus? He said, well, not, not good. I said, well, of course you don't look good. He was perfect. The guys on the TV are not your standard. Jesus Christ is your standard. And unless you're as good as Jesus, you're not good enough. Now Frank, that's why Jesus came, because none of us were any good. Jesus said, with men salvation is impossible no one ever worked their way into heaven but with God all things are possible remember what Paul said in Romans 3:23: all have sinned all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God yes some are better than others but you know in your mind visualize the Grand Canyon you know in some parts it's what I don't know 10, 20, 25 miles across, and like a mile down. And if we lined up people at the farthest point and each one of them took a running leap to try to make it, some would get farther than others, but eventually they would all fall short. Right? The same is true with, with righteousness. Some are a little better than others, but all fall way short of perfection and therefore way short of heaven. But... Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? Death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, it's not my works; It's the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. I can't earn it. It's impossible. But God freely gives it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, As good as this guy was, as moral and as rich and as ruler of a synagogue, you know what? All that is meaningless. It's impossible for him because he's trusting in his riches. He needs to empty himself, get rid of it all, because it's standing in his way between him and me. And he needs to come and follow me if he wants to be saved. That's what you need to be saved. You've got to come and believe in me and follow me. Now, it suddenly occurs to Peter that, hey, wait a minute we have left everything he talked about this guy he wouldn't leave anything hey we have left everything right to follow you and Jesus didn't rebuke interesting Jesus didn't rebuke Peter he didn't say you know Peter you're always thinking carnally aren't you you know always thinking about the rewards no I believe the Lord wants us to think about rewards I mean, I don't think that obviously what God gives to us should be the motivation for what we do. Obviously, a love for God. As Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. But it's not wrong to think to yourself someday, I can't wait to see what rewards the Lord's going to give me. Because he's allowed me to be a servant. I mean, he does the work. I don't take any credit for that. He does the work through me. I'm just an instrument. But yet someday he says he's going to reward me as if I did the work. And that's something to really get excited about, I think. And Jesus didn't discourage Peter. He said, look. He said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions interesting he threw that in there and in the age to come eternal life now you have to understand again I don't personally believe that Jesus Christ was advocating us when we get saved abandoning our families uh, leaving our wives leaving our husbands you know leaving our children there are times when as a child of God and depending on the ministry God calls you to you will be called away for maybe an extended period of time to the mission field, we'll say. There are situations in Christianity where some Christians are called away. They have to leave their families for a time to do the work of God. Uh, and, and some of the people I know, guys like Chuck Smith and Mike McIntosh, they travel quite a bit around the world ministering for Jesus. They haven't left their families once and for all, of course. But it does. they're sacrificing time with their families for the kingdom's sake. But also don't forget this that the Jewish culture was so strong that whenever a person gave their heart to Jesus and became a follower, the family disowned him. In fact, to this day, they have a funeral service. If you're a Jew and your child comes home and says, I've accepted Jesus as Messiah, they'll disown him, have a funeral service, rip their clothing. I mean, you're dead now. You're, you're considered dead. In fact, Paul the Apostle was a member of the Sanhedrin. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, you have to be married. Well, many people infer that uh, when Paul got saved, what could have happened is his wife left him because he became a Christian and she could not deal with that. And Paul speaks on the subject of marriage and things uh, almost from a firsthand knowledge. Uh, So we know that after he got saved and his wife, either she had passed away or um, or she had left him he did remain single the rest of the, his life but he was a member of the Sanhedrin and to be a member of this you had to be married so you know what there were a lot of people that especially in Jesus day these disciples that followed him were Jews they were giving up everything they were excommunicated again as I said which meant they they couldn't fellowship with their families their families disowned them. The, na- the, uh, the community uh, didn't want anything to do with them and so on uh, they left quite a bit to follow Christ. And Jesus said, all those who have done this shall, they shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands. And those in the prosperity movement have pointed to this and said, look, see, Jesus said, you know, it said, uh, in this life, in this time, you know, to follow Christ means you're going to have houses and lands. See that? God wants you prosperous. He promised you that big hundredfold return, right? Well, what about the sisters and the mothers and the brothers? He's talking literally here, right, that prosperity is the issue. I mean, how do you have 100 mothers? and hundred? I mean, is he multiplying moms too now? And what is he saying here? No, I just believe he's saying something very simple. And Jesus said it earlier. He said, I've come to bring a sword between mother and and daughter and father and son and mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. The gospel divides. When you accepted Christ, some of you right here tonight, your families have kind of disowned you in a way. Maybe not to the extent that Jews did, but it's become very cool among your relatives uh, toward you. But you know what? Even though your earthly family has forsaken you, you've become a member of the family of God. And you know what? You have moms and dads and brothers and sisters and houses everywhere you go, really. Because when one in the body hurts, we all step in to fill the void you know what i mean uh how many times have we heard stories about families that have been burned out houses burned and the and the and the church families in the church take them in and they have houses right uh and families i mean you know we are a family and that's what jesus i believe was talking about yes it costs a lot to follow him but look at what you gain you gain so much even now as the family a member of the family of god and of course in the age to come riches and things beyond your wildest dreams but many who are first will be last and the last first and maybe he was thinking about the rich young ruler again who seemed to have it all right then you know in fact people today are obsessed with youth and vigor and their bodies and you know the health clubs and you know and money material things this guy seemed to have it all He was even a leader of a synagogue. In a lot of people's minds, he was first. He was up there. You know what I'm saying? And yet he's last. I mean, he's nowhere when it comes to the kingdom. I believe there's a lot of people now, even as Christians, who are very visible. And I'm not saying that everybody on the television, all the televangelists are crooks and hypocrites. I do believe a lot of them are. But I'm convinced that there's a lot of men and women out there on TV that really love the Lord, and yet, as their ministries have grown, so has their income and the material things that they possess. And I think that they're first in a lot of Christians' minds in the sense they're very visible, their ministry is very successful. I mean, everyone knows their name in the Christian circle, you know. And yet, in the kingdom of God, they're not all that important really because they've stopped really be being a disciple and taking up their cross and following after Jesus and really have become actually the kind of people that are really feeding off to the gospel to the point where now they're the gospel has become kind of like a um, just a, a way to acquire more and more riches. Remember what Jesus said about when he was s- sitting by the temple there and he saw the people coming and throwing their offerings into the temple treasury and a widow came and put in two mites and he said most assuredly I say to you she's given more than all of these, they've given out of their abundance, she's given out of her poverty. And I do think that there's a lot of people that nobody knows about and, and they're just simple people, they don't have much but they're willing to give everything to Jesus and, and do. Uh, it's been said that the people that give the most to the work of God are the poorest section, segment of the population rich people tend to be very cheap and greedy for the most part. Whereas the poor tend to release more freely what they have. And even though they the last right now, I believe it someday when Jesus comes and we all sit down in that big auditorium wherever we're going to be sitting down, uh, they're going to be the ones up in front. And all these visible ones that were so visible today, television, books, you know, that lecture circuit, they're going to be way in the back so now is the time to use our riches or whatever we have i don't claim to have riches but i mean whatever we have for the kingdom's sake and to store treasures in heaven where they'll never rust where nobody can steal them from us and someday when we get there uh, it's going to be incredible to see what god has uh, got for us so story the rich young ruler i I think it's from a, a, a a pastoral standpoint, fascinating. The way Jesus dealt with this guy, you know? And I have to superimpose onto the story how I would have handled it. And I realize that this story has helped me quite a bit in recognizing that I would have fallen right into the same trap a lot of people would have no doubt fallen into. I would have just assumed this guy was ready, knelt with him right there, and prayed with him. He would have gone off in his merry way thinking he was a Christian when he had not really counted the cost and made the true commitment. So something to think about, you know. Take a little time. Don't just get out your four spiritual laws thing and just kind of with that canned presentation. Uh, I, I personally don't like that. I personally think you should let the Holy Spirit lead, every, lead you in speaking to every individual person. Not that you can't have a basic format to work from, but everyone's different. Uh, ask some questions. See where they're coming from before you then, you know, are willing to pray with them to receive uh, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you've included this story for us because it has so much here for our learning. First of all, of course, it describes for us very vividly through this rich young guy the deceitfulness of riches and how that rituals and religious laws can give us a form of godliness, can make us feel outwardly righteous, and yet they really can't affect the heart. Only a relationship with you can really change us from the inside out. And it also, Lord, shows us how that you never lowered the standards for entrance into your kingdom, no matter how sincere or eager somebody was or how desperate they seemed. If they weren't willing to put you on the throne of their heart and forsake all to follow you, then no matter how sincere, how motivated, how desperate they were, you you wouldn't allow them to come. And we need to realize that too, Lord. We can never lower the standards if we are going to truly call ourselves your disciples. Help us, Lord, to always present the gospel in truth. But help us, Lord, as we witness to people. That we have the same kind of love in our hearts for them that you had. That we don't ever minister the gospel out of a condemning, self-righteous, pharisaical kind of a heart. But that our heart is always breaking out of love for somebody, wanting with all of our hearts to see them saved. That's the kind of love that should motivate our witnessing, Lord. And I pray that it would be. That you would give us all that agape love for the lost. And that we would always... Reach out to them in that kind of love. Not lowering the standards, of course, but wanting to love them into the kingdom. Father, we just thank you now. We, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.